Support for Connecticut East This Week comes from Thames at Mitchell College, a holistic on-campus program that helps high school graduates prepare for college through personal transformation. Go to mitchell.edu slash Thames to learn more. Day Kimball Health, nationally recognized by LeapFrog, Beckers and the American Heart Association. Day Kimball Health, healthcare in motion. Learn more at daykimball.org. And Eastcon, for high school completion, English language instruction and employment and job training services. Go to eastcon.org slash get started today. Eastcon, you've got this. They've been serving the Northeastern community of Connecticut for 130 years. We talked to Day Kimball Health's President Carl Kramer about the community hospital's past, present and future. Plus we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Ever since the COVID pandemic, it seems our healthcare providers and hospitals are never out of the media spotlight. From rising healthcare costs to nurse shortages and the closing down of maternity and labour wards, it seems an endless array of negative stories. But for 130 years, Day Kimball Health has been providing hospital services to the communities living in the northeastern part of the state. It's one of the smaller healthcare systems in Connecticut, and I sat down with the president, Carl Kramer, to talk about its past how it's faring now in a post-COVID world and what the future looks like for Day Kimball in the challenging healthcare world. And we should point out for complete transparency that Day Kimball Health recently became a supporter of the Connecticut East This Week podcast. Carl, thanks ever so much for being on the podcast. Talk to us about Day Kimball Health. You are one of the smaller healthcare providers, yet you've been going for 130 years. Yeah, we are obviously very proud of our 130-year history and have been here since the, the formation of the organization serving the local community. And as a small rural healthcare provider, we serve a very distinct market. We're not a huge academic medical center. We're not a tertiary and quaternary center, but what we do provide is access for the 125,000 or so population members that we serve here in Northeast Connecticut for emergency care, primary care, and therapeutic care on an appropriate level. So we're very proud of that history. Talk to us about the partnerships that you have, because you do have partnerships outside of the state in Massachusetts, and you also have one here in Connecticut. Talk to us about those and why and how they happened. As an organization, recognize that we have a very strong and, and impactful role as the primary point of healthcare access for the majority of people who live in our region. There are a lot of things that we can do, like providing primary care, like providing maternal child care, like providing emergency care, and even some levels of surgical care. But there are certain things that rise to a level of patient need and clinical acuity that we're simply not capable of doing here. Not because we wouldn't want to, but we're not going to do it as frequently as other places, so therefore wouldn't have the proficiency. And in terms of the cost, to be able to provide that, it becomes a bit prohibitive. So we do have very strong relationships with the University of Massachusetts Health System, with Hartford Healthcare, with Yelena Haven Health, and also some of the Providence systems, and even working with some of the Boston systems. When a patient's needs rise to a level where what we can do is beyond what they need, we have a very strong relationship with those organizations, and we make decisions on where to send a patient based upon their specific clinical condition. As CEO, what would you say are some of these specific 
specific challenges either historically or you know moving forward for community health care because we see all the time in the news nursing shortages and costs going up just give us a sense of how that impacts as i say one of the smaller healthcare systems in our state sure i would say that you know while we may be small we are certainly mighty and we believe that the work that we do we do really really well but i think just like all small hospitals across the country we face challenges in in really three areas number one is related to access and access can be in the form of transportation you know we, we don't have a large enough population to warrant fixed bus routes there's not enough of a population that's going out on thursday or friday or saturday night to warrant a lot of taxi uber or lyft type services so transportation becomes a challenge and then in terms of access on a broader level you know we can't provide every service under the sun so therefore that begets the need for having those partnerships the second area of concern that we deal with is equity and the equity piece of this relates to the equitable distribution of services throughout the region so that patients have access to what they need but if we can't provide it locally we have a relationship that gives us the ability to get them to that level of care as necessary and appropriate and then the final piece is the affordability side of things services are obviously made much more challenging by the fact that we've gone through the pandemic over the last number of years and that created a number of concerns that we weren't dealing with as prominently as as we are now labor shortages have become a very real thing the pandemic created a cottage industry of travel nursing where a lot of staff took the opportunity to go and work elsewhere and they did so you know handsomely on an economic basis that's inflated the cost of care because we didn't get reimbursed more for services during that time period but the cost went up for real and while the cost went up for those individuals who were traveling it artificially inflated cost for employees that we've had all along and that doesn't necessarily change and concurrently to that you know we're dealing with inflation the cost of being able to get supplies to us so the cost of gasoline becomes an impactor on the cost of things that we do here at the hospital the cost of food as a byproduct of health and wellness you know the cost of food has gone up in the united states as well and the cost of supplies just from a manufacturing standpoint with what's happened through the pandemic the ability for us to get the supplies the pharmaceuticals the other materials that we need to be able to care for patients has become more costly so that affordability piece has become a real issue and concern for us talk to us a little bit about the labor cost you touched upon it just there and and we see it all over the place burnout of nursing staff etc you know during sort of like the pandemic and as you said some of them sort of like were paid handsomely to travel around what sort of impact has that had on you as providers in the state but you still need the nurses and the doctors etc so talk to us about that what sort of impact has that had on you it's had a huge impact obviously the the most valuable asset that we have as an organization is the staff that we have on the front line caring for patients whether it's our doctors our nurses our patient care techs or our other clinical provider team members that's where the magic really happens so having those resources is an incredibly important part of the overall care continuum the pandemic caused a lot of those very experienced clinicians nurses and other team members to you know say all right now's the time for me to retire and when you look at nursing as a field in particular it's always been a field that has been a little bit skewed towards an average age that's a little higher than maybe in some other fields nursing is about care it's about compassion and it's about commitment and as a consequence people who go into that field will tend to work longer into their career because it's an 
innately a part of who they are. But when you go through something where you don't know whether the patient you've been caring for during this shift is going to be here, and not just because they were transferred, but because they either lived or didn't on your next shift, you know, that's traumatic. So through the pandemic, we did see a lot of team members you know, kind of experience that traumatic stress, and it triggered the, it's time for me to retire. And as a result, what we're left with is a need to backfill those number one roles, but not only those roles, it's those highly experienced individuals who are your mentors for the younger staff who are coming in. And that's a harder replacement than just a one-for-one on somebody who leaves. So that's been a huge piece of it. In addition to that, part of what the country is experiencing is that we really haven't had as many people going into nursing school. So in the state of Connecticut, we produce about 2,000 nurses a year through the various nursing programs that exist in the state. At any given time, there's roughly 3,000 to 4,000 jobs in nursing available. That's a function of supply and demand. And as a result of that, you have a shortage of individuals who are available to take those positions. You have a tremendous need because, again, our doctors do a wonderful job of taking care of patients, developing plans, but it's our nursing team and our patient care team that are the ones that execute that plan and are managing it 24-7. And when you have a reduction of available resources in that realm, it does create some different challenges. So the nursing shortage has been very real. You know, we are partnering with academic institutions around the region. We have a very vibrant collaboration with Three Rivers Community College and their nursing program. We are working closely with the University of Connecticut and its nursing program, as well as a number of others throughout the state and across the region to, number one, engage nurses early in their clinical rotations to educate them about what is clinical medicine in a small community hospital, providing them with access to nursing internship opportunities within our organization. And hopefully that leads to their wanting to be a part of the team because they see directly where they have that opportunity to make an impact. And I think one of the differences in small community hospital care is that when you're working in a large academic center or a large medical center type of an environment, the work you do is impactful and very important. But it might not be as deeply connected to the community that you're in because people are coming from different communities. Whereas when you're working in an organization like this that is not just in the community, but it's the largest employer in the region, it's the primary portal of access for healthcare services, you're in a different type of a situation. So you're caring for neighbors, you're caring for coworkers, you're caring for colleagues, you're caring for friends, you're caring for community members. And you'll see those community members out and about when you're downtown or you go to the grocery store or whatnot. So that level of connectedness becomes much, much different. So we try to emphasize that as a part of addressing some of that that novel opportunity of why a Day Kimball, why a smaller organization creates a different opportunity, a different level of connectedness than perhaps some of the larger institutions. So we're addressing it through those types of novel approaches, but taking it a step further, we're also partnering with local high schools to introduce young people to the fact that healthcare has multiple career paths. Surprisingly, if you were to go to a high school or to a junior high and ask people, what are the available career paths? What are the careers in healthcare? They'll most commonly name doctor and nurse. What they don't think about is an imaging specialist or a laboratory professionalist or a a person who works in patient accounting or somebody who works in facilities design and management. All of those roles are vital to the success and ongoing operation of a healthcare organization. But most often, young people don't have understanding that those are options for them. So 
exposure becomes a big piece for it. And then developing pathways for young people to be a part of the healthcare enterprise to understand what are my role options, where might I fit best, and to see that this is a great career choice long-term or a part and parcel to what we're trying to do to number one, to connect with the community, number two, to build workforce and pipeline, and number three, engage young people in the fact that, you know, this hospital's been here for 130 years. If it's going to be here for another 130 years, it needs young people like you to be a part of its future. It's almost a case of manufacturing has become like a big thing here in Connecticut and people forget that like, yep, that is important. And without things that are made, you know, many jobs and and, and industries don't survive. But healthcare is another big thing which is continuing to grow. So, I mean, there's that little battle, I'm, I'm guessing, going on of like, yeah, we support manufacturing, but also don't forget that, you know, there's healthcare and we need the staff as well. Let's talk about services as well. So one of the big hot button issues at the moment in the state, it seems, is maternity and labour services. Now, Day Kimball Health does have a a nationally recognised birthing centre, which is good news because we seem to keep hearing what seems to be sort of like negative news of hospitals, larger hospitals, wanting to close down maternity and labour delivery services. Talk to us about the challenges of that, because clearly there's an issue because they wouldn't want to close them down otherwise, but you seem to be able to successfully continue with yours. Sure. We uh, unabashedly are very proud of the work that we do in maternal child care, and our program has a very profound impact on the community annually. We are delivering 400, 450, close to 500 new lives into our community, and that's something that we we take great pride in, and we feel a, a deep responsibility for supporting the community in that way. And in particular, supporting young mothers with their delivery process. So we have a fantastic team of physicians, an amazing team of support staff members in our obstetrics and gynecology practice, and then our nursing team and care team on our maternal child unit are, and our neonatal nurse practitioners are some of the very best I've ever had the privilege to work with. And the work we do is well recognized you know, from early engagement with an expectant mother all the way through the process of delivery and then post-care. You know, we're recognized by our patients and we're in the 99th percent of patient satisfaction for the work that we do. Now, bringing a child into the world is one of the most beautiful things that anyone can ever experience. And it's an experience that should be joyous. It should be loving. It should be warm and welcoming. And the team members that we have that work in our MCH unit are some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet. And as a matter of fact, we've celebrated a couple of them within recent past. One who retired from full-time work after 40 years of working within the maternal child program and another who's still working with us on a limited part-time basis, but who's been with us for 50 years. You think about just those two people and the impact that they've had on the entire community of Northeast Connecticut. They've had over the course of four or five decades to deliver children who are now delivering children whose children are now on the precipice of delivering children. That's pretty cool. And that's a really rich thing. So we love that we have that type of impact. But at the same time, there's 
a challenge with regards to this because unfortunately there are financial realities to obstetrics. It is a high cost clinical specialty. The liability side of things is costly and there are hospitals across the, the country, hospitals across even our state that have you know made evaluations as to whether this is a service that we can do well and that we can provide and cover the cost to be able to provide it. That's never been a question here. It's never been a concern for us organizationally, and it's never been something that we've even remotely deviated from. We've been here, we are here, and we will still be here in service to mothers who are expecting a child and are intending to deliver. Others in our region have you know, made other decisions, and, and we understand and we respect that. Again, we feel a deep debt of responsibility and commitment to our community, and I certainly want to make sure that those services are, are available. That doesn't mean that we don't have challenges, but we think that the responsibility is greater than the challenges. And that would be good to know, obviously, for uh, parents to be out there. Now let's go right up the other end of the age spectrum because just recently Day Kimball sold Day Kimball Homemakers to a private company called Assisted Living Services headquartered in Cheshire here in Connecticut. Talk to us about why you made that decision because I mean it's, it's just one part of the services but what was the thinking behind that? One of the things that we as a leadership team have a responsibility for is continuously looking at what is the span and scope of services that we provide directly and what are the span and scope of services that we could perhaps provide more effectively and efficiently through a partnered type arrangement. The Homemakers program is an in-home companion service. It's not necessarily direct clinical care. Our focus is health care. That's what we provide. And we ultimately came down to the determination, Brian, that our work as care providers should focus on providing care. Support services in the home are, are things that certainly matter, but there are organizations that focus solely on that, could perhaps do it better, more efficiently, and actually bring even more resource to the table in order to provide it. As we looked at the Homemakers program here, and we looked at what we were able to do as an organization, how we were able to resource it, and the service expansion opportunities that might or might not exist, it ultimately came down to a business decision that we felt that partnering with another organization would give us the ability to still maintain a connection to that side of care, but do it in a way that is more efficient and effective. So we evaluated a number of options to transition that service outside of the direct sphere of influence and operation of Day Kimball. Assisted Living Services came up as a a glowing opportunity for us. They have a tremendous reputation across the state. They provide a very deep and rich level of service and they're family owned and operated. And I think the A plus B plus C really resonated with us in terms of this is a team that we A can work with, that B have very similar values to us and C have a very significant and deep commitment to community and to serving the clients that they serve in a way that is meaningful, that has direct impact, but is also directly connected with healthcare organizations in the communities where they operate. It really came down to a business decision and an opportunity for us to take what we've done historically, transition it to assisted living services and amp it up in a way that maintains the connection to Day Kimball, but provides our clients that we had historically been serving with an even broader array of services. Give us an overview, if you would, 
Kyle, of Day Kimball Health moving forward. As we said, we've spoken throughout this interview about some of the challenges. A lot of it is to do with cost. There is staffing. How you continue to provide as a healthcare provider in an ever-changing world where we're living longer, things are costing more. You know, we want to live at home and age out at home sort of thing. So give us a sense of how you deal with that. How do you project forward in a realistic way, as you say, to try and make sure that you're continuing to deliver the services which are not only meaningful, but obviously make sure that the hospital stays in a good financial situation. So if we think about healthcare in Northeast Connecticut, it starts with really looking at the population that we serve. We serve a population of about 125,000 people. That's a population that doesn't migrate to New York City or to Boston or Hartford. It's a population that really does stay local. And it'll take us back to the early stages of the pandemic. Northeast Connecticut wasn't hit as rampantly as the inverted T of Connecticut, largely because the population here is not as mobile in and out of bigger cities where they're maybe being exposed more, et cetera. We certainly caught up fast enough, but nonetheless, this is a population that's reasonably contained and it's a population that's aging in place. You know, we do have a a large preponderance of our population that is 45, 55 and up. And because of that, there are naturally going to be certain clinical specialties that need to be present. So it all starts with having a very strong base in primary care. We're working to extend and expand our primary care teams in family medicine, in internal medicine, as well as pediatrics to make sure that the people who live here have access to doctors and clinicians that can and meet their needs early, identify risk so that we can manage it. That's part of the whole value delivery proposition. We know that there are times when individuals will need access to emergency services. So having a strong emergency medicine team and a robust emergency department remains a very vital part of of who we are and how we serve our community. Maintaining the right mix of laboratory services, the right mix of imaging services and other diagnostic services, very important for us as a community service provider. We're working to amplify what we do in all of those areas. We're going to continue to maintain partnerships for tertiary and quaternary care. We still see a partnership as a part of our future, but before we take next steps in that space, we want to make sure that we're the best version of ourselves, that we've really taken that close look in the mirror, that we're recognizing the needs of our community. We're serving those needs through programs that are meaningful, accessible, and that truly matter and have the capability of delivering strong outcomes, but we're doing it with an eye towards our future and that ultimately will likely be a partnership model with a larger health system. Well, Carl Kramer, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for talking us through what it is that you and the team do here every day at Day Kimball Health. And thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. And if you live in the Northeast and want to find out more about the services of Day Kimball Health, then visit their website at daykimball, that's D-A-Y-K-I-M-B-A-L-L dot org. Connecticut East this week is made possible by EastCon. Know someone who wants to learn English? Enroll today in one of EastCon's free English language learner programs offered virtually and in person. Learn English to get a better job, to access training or college, to help your children with school or to prepare for US citizenship. Succeed from registration to graduation with flexible classes that suit your busy lifestyle. Visit eastcon.org slash get started today and take your first step towards a brighter future. EastCon, you've got this.
Davis and Thames at Mitchell College, a college transition program on Mitchell's waterfront campus in New London. Mitchell offers a culture of radical possibilities where students with learning or processing differences can thrive, easing into college with supportive faculty and a strong social network. Within this tight-knit living and learning community, Thames students build executive functioning skills, earn college credit, learn strategies for independence and experience transformative growth. Learn more at mitchell.edu and it's time for the quiet corner to make some noise some day kimball health noise largest employer in our region kind of noise day kimball health serves more than 125,000 people offers cardiology orthopedics and oncology specialties it's having the region's only comprehensive and accredited breast center kind of noise we are nationally recognized by leapfrog beckers and the american heart association Day Kimball Health. Healthcare in motion. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. A Connecticut group wants to work with the General Assembly to minimize a deadly healthcare disparity affecting the state's black communities. Edwin J. Vieira of the Connecticut News Service reports. A 2023 health equity report from the nonprofit group Data Haven found disparities in care led to 14,000 deaths among black residents between 2017 and 2022. While the pandemic worsened the fatalities, it highlighted people falling through the cracks of Connecticut's healthcare system. Aisha Clark with Health Equity Solutions describes a priority issue her organization will work with the General Assembly to improve. Our main one is to really address financial assistance, which really entails creating a universal application for hospitals to ensure that there is a common application across the state for those who are looking for financial assistance. She adds part of this will include oversight from the Connecticut Attorney General's office, a change that isn't designed to be punitive, but rather to ensure that reform actually happens. Other priority areas, based on community feedback, include affordability of health care and examining race, ethnicity, and language preference, known as REL data, to address disparities in care. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. Local small-town leaders and mayors from 115 Connecticut municipalities met recently for the annual Connecticut Council of Small Towns meeting. Cost, as it's known, helps the state's smaller towns with populations of less than 35,000 to navigate the complexities of state government with help, resources and advocacy. Betsy Gara is the executive director of Cost and said this year they have over 30 newly elected first selectmen and women and mayors who need help and assistance. This year we featured several state agencies that provide critical grants and other resources to our towns to help them meet the needs of their communities in terms of school construction, improving indoor air quality, paving roads, traffic safety, environmental protection issues. So there is so much to know as a first electman or newly elected mayor. Governor Lamont was the event's keynote speaker and talked about his recent State of the State address and how many aspects of that and biennial budget affect small towns and how the state is looking to partner with them to make sure they achieve their goals for their local communities. If you say, look, I don't need a full-time building inspector, I need a part-time building inspector or assessor. Places where your town already maybe is sharing with with some of your neighbors, or you're trying to purchase these people on a part-time basis, and you pay a premium to do that. 
We're trying to make sure that our COGS have these folks as needed. They've got them there on a full-time basis, so you get the specialization and skills you need at a lot less cost than hiring somebody full-time. Lamont also discussed property tax issues, high-speed internet that will be coming to all corners of the state, and testing for PFAS forever chemicals in drinking water wells across the state, among other issues. The Veterans Health Administration part of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs have sent letters to almost 50,000 veterans informing them of a breach of their data regarding medical appointment postcards containing their details that were sent to another veteran receiving care. The VA said two events of mismailing were reported back on December 11, 2023, but it took until mid-January of 24 for the VA to inform affected veterans. According to a VA spokesperson, veterans in 12 states were affected by the data breach, including veterans across Connecticut. The postcard error came from the Xerox company, who are a print center and vendor to the VA. Both the VA and Xerox declined to give interviews about the mix-up, supplying statements instead. The VAs said they regretted any disclosure of sensitive veteran information and acted as quickly as they could once they identified those involved. The Xerox company who printed the postcards said they also regretted any inconvenience caused to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and its members. The VA said that no social security numbers, dates of birth or additional identifying information was divulged in the mix-up. In the day this this week, and is it the end of the road for the Crystal Mall in Waterford? J.C. Penny, the last remaining anchor store at the Crystal Mall, and one of the 40-year-old mall's original tenants, will close on May 25th, the chain's media relations department confirmed in an email. J.C. Penny, one of the few national brands still operating at the Crystal Mall, had been the only store left in an anchor position at the mall since a first-floor Christmas tree shop outlet closed last year. That store shared an anchor position with Bed Bath and Beyond, which was on the second floor. Bed Bath & Beyond closed its Crystal Mall store in late 2022 and declared bankruptcy in early 2023. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms, on demand, and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow, and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. 